Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast series. I have Lilach Scheiner. She's a senior lecturer at the Royal Society of Edinburgh, personal research fellow in parasitology. Uh, She's an expert in eukaryotic parasite cell biology. And we're going to talk about uh, her research. So, Lilach, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, well, um, I've started a series on uh, parasitology. It's fascinating what parasites do. What about yourself? Um, how long have you been working with parasites and what fascinates you about them? Um, so I've been working parasites um, the vast majority of my career, all the way since my master's degree, um, which I probably don't care to say how long ago it was, but um, <laughs> probably probably some good um 13 years now. Um, and what fascinates me is, is a couple of things. Um, firstly, is the, um, the diversity of biology uh, that parasites present compared to most of the biology we know. Um, and I'll probably, you'll probably hear me mentioning that, comment, that sort of concept again. Um, and then the other thing, of course, many parasites cause diseases. And so understanding their biology could help prevent the disease by um, discovering new targets for for intervention. So both of those things are huge motivations to study parasites. So what do you mean when you say parasite biology is very different from, you know, typical biology that we're familiar with? So so I think that, that that's something that, um, that, that is a really... Um, it, it's it's a really important point that many people maybe um, fail to uh, to to grasp or or that are, that many people are not aware of, and and that is that you know as mankind we live in an environment that has huge diversity in it, um, and yet when we speak about what we know uh, in terms of biology, um, most of what we know is about human and about animals. Um, including, you know, fish and, and worms and, and mice and, and other animals. Um, but there is this huge sort of uh, variety of life forms that we know very, very little about, uh, sort of how they operate, how they tick, how, how they do things differently uh, to, to our cells, to our uh, biology. Um, and parasites are included in that sort of huge... Um, sort of information information gap. So what are some specific examples of parasite biology that just really surprised you? So so let's look at the the biology I'm focused on. So um, you know human have are are, are composed of, of billions of cells. So the small operating unit in our body is a cell. Um, and then parasites, the ones I'm studying, are, are also cells. And so within the cells, you have features that provide function. 
sort of like little compartments, like little rooms inside the cell. And one of those is, um, is known to many people as the powerhouse, uh, the mitochondrion that makes energy for our cells in our body and also for the cells of the parasite. Um, and so what was very surprising to, um, to myself and to the field as a whole is that um, parasite mitochondria um, operates very, very differently from human mitochondria. Um, and that firstly teaches us about, uh, again, sort of diversity in nature that, that we didn't really appreciate at the beginning. Um, and again, brings up opportunities for drug discovery. So if you think about a parasite like malaria, for example, that many people know, and a drug like malaron that many people heard of, malaron attacks the mitochondrion of the malaria parasite, but it doesn't attack the uh, mitochondrion of the human. That's why malaron works. Um, and this is because of these very sort of basic fundamental differences between how these two work. So all right, so what's an example? Tell me about, you know, the fuel source that our human mitochondria use and then contrast that with a parasite like malaria. What's so different about their mitochondria? Um, so what's different is um, it's more uh, basic than the fuel source that they're using. Um, the differences are in the active machineries. Um, so, for example, um, mitochondria both in... Um, in human and in parasites, um, and in the malaria parasite, um, generate energy through this chain of complexes. So chain of little machineries that sort of pass molecules between one another. Um, and in that way, they generate this uh, um, potential of energy. Um, and the complexes, the, let's say the shape of the complexes in the malaria parasite is different to the shape of the complexes uh, in human parasite. And that allows, for example, malaron to sort of fit nicely in the pockets of the complexes uh, or the machineries in malaria and not fit in the complexes of the human mitochondria. Okay. So different shapes of receptors, let's say on the surface of their mitochondria, um, you know, possibly different mechanism, but uh, different enough that you can have drugs like Malaron that, again, would destroy their mitochondria malaria, but not ours. That's good. Yeah, exactly. So uh, different um, active machineries. So they're not really receptors, but I don't know if that matters very much. They're, um, um, yeah, they're active complexes or enzymes, you can say. They're, they're sort of these big, big enzymes. Okay, so what... what uh parasites are you studying now specifically are you studying malaria or toxoplasmosis or yeah so uh, so i do i uh, i study two types of parasites uh one is the parasite that causes toxopla toxoplasmosis and the other is the parasite that causes malaria and and the thing that maybe not many people know is that those parasites are biologically very similar to one another um, and toxoplasma allows us to do certain types of experiment that maybe the malaria parasite um, is a little harder to um, to do with. Um, and so that's why we use toxoplasma as a model uh, in many cases um, to study the, the to, to ask the research question we're asking about, about the parasite. Well, again, what are you trying to figure out about uh, toxoplasmodium? Well, first of all, let's back up. Where does it come from? What kind of host does it uh, go into and what does it do once it's in there? Um, 
So um, toxoplasma uh, infects a whole range of animals, and that includes a human. Uh, and the disease that it causes is, uh, is called toxoplasmosis. And many people who've heard of toxoplasmosis or toxoplasma would associate it to this parasite that you might get if you if you clean your cat litter and don't wash your hands, and, and that can make your behavior a bit funny. Um, and, and so that's what toxoplasma is most famous for. Uh, in fact, the most common way to get toxoplasmosis is from undercooked meat and from unwashed vegetables. Um, and the sort of uh, health risks that are the best studied one, rather than the behavior one, um, are the ones that uh, toxoplasma could cause um, severe brain damage. Um, and that typically only happens in people whose immune system doesn't work. For example, AIDS patients or uh, people who are about to have a transplantation and their immune uh, system is suppressed so that they accept a new organ. Um, and that's also why toxoplasma and toxoplasmosis are uh, involved in pregnancy, uh, because uh, babies don't have their immune system before they're born. And so if mom gets toxoplasma for the first time during pregnancy, then the baby is at risk um, for brain damage. Um, but mostly healthy people could get infected and then um, just have a little bit of flu-like symptoms and then ride off the, the disease. Once someone has the toxoplasmodium, does it stay forever or what can they do? Um, so toxoplasma um, is is thought to persist in your uh, body for the rest of your life. And when the immune system attacks the parasite, it goes into this dormant form um, that stays forever. Um, and one of the biggest issues with, uh, with treatment for toxoplasma and toxoplasmosis is um, that we don't have a cure that could uh, sort of uh, clear the, the chronic infection. And so there isn't much you could do. Uh, what doctors tend to do if somebody is about to be, become immunocompromised because they have a disease that, that is known to um, interfere with the immune system, then um, doctors would test uh, for um, uh, positivity or negativity with toxoplasmosis, and then they know uh, to, to uh, expect a potential outbreak when the patient becomes immunocompromised. And then um, for the form of the disease uh, that causes the acute infection, so when the dormant parasite outbreaks again, uh, for that we have uh, drugs like pyrimetamine, for example. Well, how long can, so if toxoplasma can stay dormant in someone forever, what would activate that, uh, that parasite later on that would either harm them or cause them to spread it to someone else? So. Um, Human to human, um, there is no spread uh, of toxoplasma. So the way to get toxopla toxoplasma infection is um, by eating undercooked meat or, or unwashed vegetables. Um, and so there is no risk for human to human uh, um, infection. Um, and what typically uh, triggers the disease is if you go immunocompromised. So once your immune system is off guard, that's when the parasite can sort of wake up again and, and cause symptoms. Huh. So, yeah, God forbid someone uh, needs an organ transplant when they're older. 
they've had this or they have cancer and they get chemo, let's say they need to be immunosuppressed, they, they might not be able to be, right? Um, so they could, they would be able to. What the doctors would typically do is test if they are seropositive for toxoplasma. And if they are, then um, they keep testing whether um, the, whether the, the parasite became undormant or whether the parasite woke up. And then there is uh, there are um, treatments that you can give when the parasite is is awake again, and things like uh, pyrometamine, for example. So, what specifically are you uh, trying to figure out in regards to toxoplasma? And and so, like I said, um, my my sort of main motivation to study toxoplasma and, and other parasites is um, is not so much to understand something about the disease or about the parasite, uh, but more to um, enrich our understanding of um, of different life forms. Um, so um, I don't know if that's a good enough. No, that's fine. With well, with parasites, what what's interesting to me is that they're able to inhabit sometimes multiple hosts. You know, an, an intermediate host and then like a, a definitive host, and they can be completely different creatures. And then they can go into dormant states and then come out of them a long time later. So they seem to have like very malleable, sophisticated biology. So in those instances, are there specific things about you know parasite biology that you want to study to see how other creatures might be able to do that or how we could learn from them. Like, you know, again, their ability to be in different biological hosts and a completely different biologically, you know, what is it about them that you want to figure out? Um, so I think what, what's interesting about understanding how parasites work and how um, a parasite cell work in a different way to a human cell is that it gives us tools to to later on make um, sort of biotechnological progress. Um, you know, because parasites have such a, um, a unique and complex biology, uh, there is a lot we can learn from them and, and, and sort of... Um, take advantage of that. Uh, and so one example for one, one, one example I could give you is, is, um, is work that we've done recently. Um, so toxoplasma has the ability to cross the blood brain barrier and typically things don't get to get to the brain. The blood brain barrier is very selective to try to protect the brain from anything getting into it. Um, and this is a big issue um, in brain therapy. Um, and so what we've done recently is we've generated toxoplasma parasites that express human proteins that could then go into the brain the way they do when they uh, during infection. And then they can deposit the human protein back in the brain. And so basically we're trying to use toxoplasma to turn it into a therapy delivery. And of course, there is a lot of work we need to do to reduce um, the infectivity part or the disease causing part of the parasite. But by understanding how these parasites live, um, we got to even think of this idea of, of using them as couriers. So I think that's a, a really good example of the sort of things we can learn when we study life forms that are very different to the one we already know. Hmm, okay. Um, any, well, in terms of crossing the blood brain barrier, um, I don't know, has it been literally observed? I mean, I guess you'd find parasites, you know, across the blood-brain barrier. 
is it possible in a lab to literally set up a situation where you'd uh, culture cells and, and watch a parasite do such a thing? Yeah, so that's be observed. Yeah, yeah, so so that's been done. Observing parasites crossing the blood-brain barrier has been done by some researchers uh, in mice models, um, and 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 you can really see that sort of in an experimental setting. Okay, so with that observation, what's what's been observed? I mean, uh, are they burrowing through the barrier? Are they releasing a chemical that uh, loosens the bonds of the barrier that they fit through? Are they sending through maybe uh, an emissary or a, you know? part of themselves that, that grows another parasite like what's the mechanism i see so um yeah so so how the parasite crosses the blood brain barrier has been studied in different types of, of model system and, and in some cases really in in uh, in animal models and have been really observed in, in live microscopy and, and there are sort of three different ways that are um, accepted at the moment that the parasite uh, crosses and so the first one is that the parasite could sort of uh, piggyback on um, cells of the immune system that do get uh, access to the brain. So it goes into those cells of the immune system and then just enter like a Trojan horse. Um, and then the two other ways are both dependent on the parasite motility. So these parasites are very motile. They they have a little sort of um, walking machinery almost or gliding machinery it's called. Um, and then either they penetrate the cell and come out on the other side, uh, or they really invade the cell and then multiply and burst out of the other side. So they'll invade cells in our body that can go through the blood-brain barrier, and, uh, put material in them, the cell migrates through, and then uh, toxoplasma are formed inside the cell using the cell machinery and then explode out. Is that the mechanism? Okay. So that that's one of the, one of the ways that toxoplasma is sought to move through the blood-brain barrier is by going into an immune cell um, that can cross the blood-brain barrier, and then um, after the uh, barrier, the parasite comes out of the of the immune cell. So that's one of the ways that that it could go through. Hmm. So in one way, they act kind of like viruses. Uh, I guess there are some similarities um, between. Toxoplasma and Zika virus. That's um, in that sense, yeah. So, what uh, what are you hoping to figure out that you think will be very useful in defending against uh, Toxoplasma or other parasites? Are there any uh, hypotheses you have that you're working on experimentally? Yes. So, um, both Toxoplasma and Plasmodium, which causes malaria, um, have in their mitochondria a little machine that makes all the all the proteins, all the building blocks that are necessary uh, for the mitochondria and therefore for the parasites to survive. Um, and this machine, it's called the ribosome, um, also, is also present in human, but the parasite one looks and acts very, very differently to the human one. Um, so if, if you saw a picture of of the mitochondrial ribosome in parasites and the mitochondrial ribosome in human, you wouldn't think they are the same, they're doing the same thing. Um, and so this uh, presents opportunities for drugs to interfere only with the parasite machinery and not with the uh, human one. And so what we're hoping is to understand the structure and the function of this machine to enough details so that we could then design drugs to stop the parasite machine and not the um, the human one. Okay. Uh, 
any other parasites that uh, you observe that have even more abilities than the ones we talked about? That are there any super parasites out there that just are unbelievable in what they can do? Um, yes, I think um, I think. Ooh, what's a good example for that? Yeah, I'm not sure I have a great example for that right now. Huh? Are there any? Uh, you know, are there other parasites that you've studied that have just very different biology to the ones that you're even currently studying? Like how diverse are the forms and abilities of parasites in general? Are they very diverse just like, you know, animals are or other creatures are, or are they pretty similar? Um, so different parasites are extremely different from, from one another and from the cells of, of animals and humans. Um, some example actually from the parasite I am working on is that um, they have a plastid. Uh, so plants, for example, have a plastid, they do photosynthesis. Uh, and parasites, some parasites also have a plastid. Obviously they don't do photosynthesis because they're inside another um, animal. So they, uh, they don't have access to, um, to a light, to, to the sunlight. Um, but then there are other sort of metabolic pathways that are hosted in in in, the, in those plastids, and so in a way you could you could consider that being a super cell uh, because they can make themselves their own food in in various different ways. I don't know if that really so they can so they can make their own food what uh, like animal cells would, and they can also do it how plant cells would. You mean? Um, in a way, yeah, I think that that's a that's a way to summarize it. They, they can make themselves at least some of the things they need to survive, um, yeah, in in two different ways, as well as they can scavenge some food from the host where they reside. So they cover their chances to survive on various different ways, unlike uh, human cells. What do you think uh, drives this this hyperability of parasites versus other creatures? Mm. I mean, do they do they seem to adapt faster than other creatures? Or I think the I think the issue is is uh, is niches, um, and so where do different organisms live? Um, and these parasites um, have to survive uh, immune systems of their host. They have to survive. Um, they have to find a way to move between one host and another, uh, so to transmit. Sometimes they have to survive in the environment until they get picked up by the next host. And I think those needs push them to, to have all these sort of new and exciting biological solutions um, that cells of multicellular organisms maybe don't need to deal with. Hmm. Okay. So any breakthroughs that you think you're close to you know, in the next year or so? Um, so we, we have stumbled across some compounds that are much more potent to the parasites than to, uh, to human cells. Um, and so we are following up on those as, as potential leads for, for drugs, for toxoplasmosis and for uh, malaria. Um, probably considering um, the drug discovery process, that wouldn't happen next year. Uh, but it's certainly looking very exciting at the moment. Well, very good. What, what's the best way for people to learn more about your research and to get in touch and about parasites in general? The best way would be to go on my website, uh, which is uh, lilacshiner.wixsite.com uh, or just to search Shiner Lab on Google. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter at Shiner Lab.
Okay, well, very good. Well, Lulat, it was great to speak to you, and I appreciate you coming on. Hey, you too, and thank you for taking the time to ask me some cool questions. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 